Raising black children in the United States can be really scary. And as a black mother, I realized I was parenting from fear. And I wanted to make a commitment to parent for liberation. You are listening to the Parenting for Liberation podcast, and I am your host, Trina Green-Brown. Each week, I am joined by other black parents, and we discuss our own journeys to push past our fear so that we can raise our beautiful black children to be whole, free, and liberated. Wake up, everybody, no more sleeping in bed. No more backward thinking, time for thinking ahead. This episode of Parenting for Liberation is a recording from a workshop I did this summer at PAC Family Camp. PAC Family Camp is a camp for adoptive families. Of the 150 families, 75% of the children identify as African American or Black, whereas 75% of the parents of those children identify as White. And so I was invited by Malika Parker. Shout out to Malika, a Black woman who's been doing incredible work at this organization to make sure that the experiences of Black parents and Black children are centered in that white folks are doing their work around white fragility to make sure that they are racially conscious about what it means to raise black children in the United States as white folks. So I was brought in to do two workshops, one for parents of color and also for the white parents. The episode that you'll be listening to is the recording from the workshop I did with the white parent. I did not record the parent of color workshop because that's an intimate sacred space. I typically don't center white folks in this podcast or in this work. But I felt compelled to show up to support black babies, to receive as much support as they could, um, and to make sure that their parents really knew what it meant to be raising black children in the United States. Recognized as an inspirational parent by Kadra and a black feminist rising by Black Women's Blueprint, Trina is a leader on the rise, bringing black parents and children along with her toward black liberation. Trina Green-Brown. Thank you. How are y'all this morning? Good, good, good. So as Raquel beautifully read, thank you. Um, My name is Trina Green-Brown, and I am a black feminist mama. Hey, y'all. I like the energy. I like the hey back. Appreciate it, um, because this will be as interactive as I can make it. I... I'm not a lecturer, I'm more of a facilitator, I hold space. I do a lot of work with black families and I do work with young people, I used to be a youth organizer and so I'm used to walking around and talking. All right, so all of the work that I do is grounded in black liberation. Um, And I believe that if black people were liberated and free then all of us would be liberated and free. By show of hands, do we believe that black liberation will get us all free? Okay, beautiful. Okay, so many of you might know this black feminist author, Audre Lorde. This quote kind of guides the work that I do. We're raising black children in the mouth of a racist, sexist, suicidal dragon, a.k.a. the United States of America. It's perilous and chancy. If our children cannot love and resist, they cannot survive. Um, And when I was with the Parents of Color Collective yesterday, That workshop was about how to raise our children to love and resist, and specifically for folks who are of color, by loving ourselves, we can also teach and model for our children to love themselves and to resist. Audre Lorde said that if they cannot love and resist, they will not survive, and Parents of Liberation really believes in not only survival, but thriving. We want our children to be thriving. We don't want them to be whole. We want them to be liberated. And so just kind of continue to push the needle a little bit on that idea of of survival to thriving. 
So Parenting for Liberation. Our mission is to cultivate resilient and joyful black families by healing and transforming black parent struggles into liberated collective power. And so we do that variety of ways, podcasts. We also hold space, do collaborations, do workshop series. And one of my favorite workshops was working with parents in prison, um, working with mothers in prison who are incarcerated, who are returning home to their children because the most incredible thing you could do is help parents who are actually being held in cages to be liberated and reconnect to their children. And I think that when we talk about liberation, we have to even think about families who are not in liberated spaces. We also have print. I printed a storybook, and that currently that book is actually in process of being printed with Feminist Press, so that'll come out June 2020. It's a workbook and a storybook. It takes stories from different black families who are raising black children about what are their ways of practicing liberation. And all of this is a vision of a world where black children are raised for liberation and not from fear um, by a community of black parents. And I think being in this space also lets me, I'm learning also being in this space that there are many people raising black children. So liberation is going to look like whoever is impacting the life of black children, that if black children are free, we all will be free. All right, so y'all in there now. Okay. All right. And so the goal is that liberated parents are ready to challenge institutional violence and racism on behalf of their children and the entire community of children. Okay? So that's essential. Yes, I'm glad y'all like that because this workshop is called Narratives of Race, Leverage and Privilege for Children of Color. And I'll be honest. So this is my first time at PAC camp. This is my first experience kind of facilitating to like a predominantly like non-black audience. Um, and it's also my first experience being in a space where like I see lots of beautiful black and brown children and predominantly non-black and brown parents. And I was like, okay, I want to talk to them about how to, leverage, how to leverage their privilege to support their children. And then I witnessed it. I was like, oh, they're already doing that. So like they don't need me to talk <laughs> about this, right? <laughs> well, I'll, and I'll also be honest, right? I also have been triggered in the space as a black parent. Um, I've also witnessed folks utilizing their privilege in ways that is harmful. It uplifts their black child, but it forgets about all the other black children around their child. And so, yeah, so I've experienced some things while it's, I've only been here one day, by the way, guys. <laughs> I was like, it's only been one day. So last night, I literally went to my room and I, it was just sitting with me. I actually witnessed an incident that was really hard for me to witness where parents are advocating for their own children and forget that they're advocating against other black children. Um, and that, that witnessing that um, was really hard. Because I believe that when you advocate for your child, it's supposed to be on behalf of all children. Okay, so I had to go to my room and talk to my ancestors because I was like, why the hell am I here? Like, I can't, I, my number one concern was I cannot present in a way that would be misused and misguided. I couldn't say, hey, use your privilege, because I saw people using their privilege, um, but it was harmful. And so I had to really like, wrestle with what I was going to talk about. And this is not to shame or shade anyone. This is really about like, how can we uplift all children of color? Because my black boy is here on this camp, and he could have been one of the kids who was being called in about his behavior. And the way that he, the children were called in was not for the upliftment of all black children. And so for that fact, I went back to my room and I could not sleep last night. I had to sage and Palo Santo and pray and turn on. I love being black. 
um, to really kind of ground myself, right? I had to be like regrounded. Ancestors, why am I here? What is my purpose? What is that's needed? And what, is, what can I offer that will uplift all children of color? Because if you leave here thinking that your number one goal is to make sure that your baby is good, then what about all the other babies? And this is why we currently have babies locked in cages and we just kind of keep going. It's like we only are concerned about our little nuclear family. And so, and this is not about only y'all, this is all of us. I'm also included. We also, we have to think about all children of color. So, this is a new title. So we're now leveraging our privilege for all, can we say all? All, all children of color. All right, so that's what we're gonna be talking about. Sounds good? Okay. All right, so white privilege is always like one of those words that like you bring it up, it gets silent, and people stop clapping and stop smiling. <laughs> they stop being happy about being in the room like, oh shit, here we go. Um, who believes that white privilege is real by show of hands? Okay, great. So we're in shared company. Who in this room knows that they benefit from white privilege? Okay, great. All right, for folks who may not have raised their hands because I can't see everyone, and for folks who might need a little refresher, um, white privilege is not, because this is what often people are like, I don't have privilege, I struggled, my family was poor, and all the things, I worked hard for everything. Great, that's, that's true, you did. A round of applause for everybody who worked hard, and, <laughs> and who struggled, and who was poor. Great, yes, and white privilege is not the suggestion that, you, that there are white people who have never struggled, and white privilege is not the suggestion that Everything that a white person has earned, they got it and they didn't work for it. It was just like they woke up and they were just successful. That's not what we're saying. And in case you don't listen to me, I've also learned a part of white privilege is white people listen to white people. Okay, like literally it's one of the, it's one of the things in the whole backpack list that Peggy McIntosh talked about is like, if a white person says something in research, then it has more credibility. And if a black person says it, it's like, oh, sure, are you sure? We should research that. Is there any data to prove what you just said? Okay, so if you need data and you need affirmation, here's some of your people <laughs> who also say that white privilege is real. Haggy McIntosh is often like acknowledged for naming. <clears throat> um, so she says that white privilege is unquestioned and unearned set of advantages, entitlements, benefits, and choices bestowed upon people solely because they are white. Generally, white people who experience such privilege do so without being conscious. But y'all are conscious, right? Okay, beautiful. And then you got your guy, Tim Wise, and you know, white fragility. You got it. Um, okay, so I'm going to go really quick through these slides because you know how white privilege shows up. It shows up in our income, in the way that the pay gap. So in feminist world, we always talk about like the gender pay gap. What is the gender pay gap? Well, when you break that down by race, the gender pay gap is even more substantially widened, right? So for every dollar a white man makes, white women make 86 cents, 80 cents for Asian women, 64 cents black women, 48 cents Latino, Latina women. So how is this related to white privilege? Are you doing the same work, same job, same title, same education, same background? You could be doing less work, have less experience, have less education, and still get paid more for the same job title. So white privilege shows up in home ownership. 64% of white folks own homes, and less, like about half of black folks, 33% own homes. Why is that? How is that related to white privilege? Redlining. Who wants to tell us what redlining is? Thank you, Jeff. Uh, you can't get a loan or move to a particular neighborhood based on the color of your skin, or yes. you can. The privilege is The privilege is that you can, and if you're because of the color of your skin, right, that you have access 
to loans. You don't have to deal with predatory lending. You don't have to do with like, oh, you can't purchase a house in this community. You can only purchase a house in this community. I see a hand. Fair Housing Act has never been fully implemented, so it's still much, much harder for people of color, and particularly African-American people, to get mortgages. And when they do, they get higher interest rates. Exactly. Beautiful. Yeah. Uh-oh. Here's... All right, last one. Last one. I see this is an active bunch. All right, y'all gonna have to meet me halfway. I can't be walking all sorry, over. Sorry, babe. Sorry, babe. I just wanted to say inherited wealth, I feel like, is also a really huge uh -huh. How issue. How do you buy a home? Who pays for your down payment on your home? How many of you in here own a home? If I ask the same question in the other room, do you think everybody raised their hand? All right. White privilege shows up with your interaction with police and law enforcement. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. How many of you guys think police are there to protect and serve? Raise your hand. Well, for you, for you. For you, for white people. You think that police are there to protect and serve white people? If you call the police, are you going to be afraid that they're going to shoot you? Raise your hand. Okay, yeah, so that's privilege, right? You can call the police and they'll show up and be ready to help, potentially. Also, if you are pulled over while you're driving, are you worried about this as a life or death situation? Okay, that's white privilege. If you do get arrested, are you worried that they're gonna like bring up all these other false charges and find fake evidence and railroad you? Do you expect to get a fair trial as a white person? Well, those are privileges of having white skin. Because of those privileges, it leads to only 380 people per 100,000 people um, being incarcerated in 2010 while there's 2,207 black people arrested, right? Look at that ratio from 300 people to 2,000 people. And mind you, the African-American community, you'd be like the smallest group of the population and be the largest group incarcerated. All right, in education. So we talked about those homes that you own. Where your home is located and where you live will impact what schools you go to, yeah? Okay, so what happens when you can't buy a home in an affluent area? What kind of schools do you go to? Under-resourced schools, low-poverty schools, African-American students. At high poverty schools. I love the way they describe this. High poverty. It sounds like it's something good. Um, high poverty. And they're like, white students here, 35% at low poverty schools. I was like, what does that mean? Affluent schools? It's just resource and under-resourced schools, right? Do you see the discrepancy and where it jumps? Like all of the black babies here. High poverty schools. What happens? What is that connected to? How is this connected to that previous slide of relationship to police? School to prison pipeline. Who knows what that is who wants to share with our group? Yeah, the school-to-prison pipeline is, is where my African-American daughters are far more likely to be uh, expelled from school for the same kind of behavior issues that white kids aren't expelled for. And mm -hmm. in schools that have school resource officers, they're far more likely to be arrested. Yeah, exactly. So do these schools, what are they, these schools don't have books and stuff like that, right? What they got? Cops. I live in Los Angeles. Los Angeles has the second largest police department for their school district. So we have the LAPD, and then we have the Los Angeles School Police Department. And when the LAPD is done with their old riot gear and tanks and all those things, who do you think they give them to? The Los Angeles School Department Police. What do they need riot gear for? Oh, because our black babies are criminals, right? But not really. This is connected. You go to poorer schools, lower chances in succeeding in college and all of those things. And also the school to push out. So they call it school to prison pipeline. Some folks call it school push out. It's an intentional structure to push and fuel 
our people of color, our young people of color to criminal justice system to keep those numbers like this. If you go to a school where it's high resource, okay, you're not getting kicked out. You're getting sent to the principal's office, you're having counseling sessions, your parents aren't invited to parent meetings. All of these systems work together. Healthcare, black maternal mortality rates. That black women, again, our population in the United States of America is in the low double digits, but black women make up 42% of, of deaths by pregnancy-related incidents, while only 12% of white women. Why is there such a huge gap in the black and white maternal mortality rate? Our healthcare system believes that black people can sustain higher levels of pain, that when they report pain and um, any type of physical suffering, that it's not believed as much as when the white person makes physical complaints. Other things, there are stereotypes about black folks and drugs, right? Like, oh, they're just saying that because they want more drugs. Serena Williams just had a beautiful baby. Serena Williams is famous. Serena Williams is wealthy. She's married to a wealthy person as well. She has her own resources. And when she was in the hospital, she has experience in the past of pulmonary embolisms. And so after she delivered her child, she was telling them, like, oh, I feel nervous. I feel like my um, pulmonary embolisms are in my chest. I need some medication. And she knew exactly what, kind of, what, what she needed. She, like, named the treatment. They ignored her. Regardless of your income, your wealth, your education, your privilege, outside that just be by the sheer fact of being black that that trumps everything unemployment we talked a little bit about income why is it that the unemployment rate for black folks who have some college experience higher than white folks who don't even have a diploma bias hiring name bias you don't even get an interview because they don't look at your application because your name is ethnic you went to hbcu you didn't go to one of those prestigious white institutions Nepotism, what does that mean? That's that white privilege, huh? I got a friend who know a friend, who gonna get a friend, a job. I saw another hand. Well, I was gonna say something similar. Um, people hire within their own social networks. All right, okay, that's all of them. So, if you don't think that white privilege exists, congratulations, you are enjoying the benefits of it. Give yourselves a hand. All right, so you know you got it. Here's where my ancestors were talking to me last night. Because, you know, I was thinking, well, great, like these white folks who have white privilege are going to be raising children of color. So they're going to like, you know, when it's time to get that job, right? Like you're going to hire, you're going to get your kid the job in the network, right? Or if your kid, your kid might not go to that school, right? Because you'll maybe put them in the school where it says like low poverty schools. Or you might find the best tutor. You might put them extracurricular activities. You know, they're going to have all the things. They have all the things that white privileged stuff people can buy. Yeah? Right. Which I was like, cool. They can leverage their privilege for the sake of their children of color. However... Your kid, I just also want to be like, what doesn't trickle down from white privilege? Like all of the resources can, the inheritance can, the money can. What doesn't trickle down is white skin. Like they don't get white privilege. You might get them that job. They're going to go to that job. They're going to still be black. You might get them into that school. They're going to still be black. Right? So what white privilege doesn't protect from is racism and anti-blackness. Um, and it doesn't protect from white supremacy. 
right? It just actually white privilege reinforces white supremacy. So if you only believe that you can keep helping your child, you're just reinforcing white supremacy and racism, and then your child's going to experience that. So you kind of not, it's actually a disservice to your child. So, you know, white privilege doesn't trickle down to protect folks of color from racism, right? Ask this lady. Who knows this lady? <laughs> Oprah? She experienced shopping while black, and she's Oprah. <laughs> Have y'all seen that video where she's telling the story about her shopping, and they're like, no, you, can't, you cannot buy this Louis Vuitton purse. And she's like, I can't? And they're like, no, we just cannot sell it to you, right? And, and that's one incident. I think she's had three stories. She was at another store in Switzerland. She has another store in Rome. She has a store in Italy. And they're just kind of like, no, black woman, we cannot sell this to you, right? All the wealth, billionaire, she don't get white privilege. She's still shopping while black. Anybody know this guy? Henry Louis Gates, researcher, PhD, Harvard. He has 50 honorary degrees, so brilliant. Coming home from China, was just on this like incredible trip, and research and all the things, just brilliant. All the educational privilege in the world. He liked himself out. He's trying to get into his own house. Some neighbor called the police, black man breaking in. He gets arrested on his own doorstep. So he was arrested. So again, like all the, all the educational privileges, economical privileges, doesn't make them exempt from white supremacy, racism. So stop using your white privilege for personal gain, right? For the gain of yourself or your children or your network or your people, and begin to check your privilege and risk your privilege. At first, I was saying leverage your privilege, which is like, oh, let's use it for the good. But I was like, no, you got to risk it. Because when you risk your privilege, you're willing to lose that shit for the sake of liberation. You're willing to give it up. The only way that we can end white supremacy is if white folks gave up their privileges. The only way that we can make this world equitable is if you're willing to let go of your comforts and the accessibilities and all the things, right? And I say do it for the sake of not only your children, but all children of color. Here we go, interactive scenarios. So these are real life scenarios that either happen to me or other folks of color with their babies. And so I'm curious as to how someone who has white privilege can actually leverage their privilege, not for their own child only, but for the sake of all, okay? Remember the all part, right? First scenario, this is real time, this really happened to me. So your child comes home from school, it's a child of color, and says, mama, daddy, I wish I had white skin. What's your response to your baby, and then also what's your response largely to the community in that school? This is real time. You know, they, they know that race exists at four, right, four or five. So they know that they don't want to be black or have brown skin because they know that they're not getting the same thing, right? Do y'all know that this is happening? Okay. So I'm sure you probably have already dealt with it, and you probably dealt with it possibly only for the benefit of your child. You made sure that that was okay with your child. Now I want you to think about how do you Utilize your privilege to shift that for all children of color. All right. What y'all come up with? How y'all liberating all, baby? So, so being, um, I mean, this is, we've all dealt with this already. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the, and I, I know in my son's school, the hiring of, of black teachers in terms of representation of who's teaching and who's actually in leadership positions in the school is a huge issue that we're talking about right now currently and advocating for, in, for the entire school to kind of shift the way they're thinking about hiring. Um, and also representation inside of 
what the, what band-aids or or you know the books that that are not just around black history month or stories of oppression but actually are centering centering stories of color from the perspective of, like um is it Jaden Toussaint is one of the bo- books that's like uh, my son started to read where it's like the protagonist is a child of color who is actually really up to something and and it's not just about you know um stories of oppression inside of thinking about people of color. Amen. Um, so, but, but that looking at curriculum, looking at curriculum as a larger context around the school. So when that happened, cause it happens, like mm-hmm. um, we had those conversations and we got the books that just had representation that he could see himself in the books that were in our house, but making sure that our school library had them, making sure that the classrooms, mm-hmm. you know, so that all the kids, cause they're, they were all going through that, you know, but that we'd chosen a school where he wasn't the only kid of color and so that those conversations were happening, but they needed more support. So that was what we did. Other ideas. Okay, so this, this exact thing happened with our son. He was in kindergarten, came home crying um, because, in his words, he was crying because he wasn't skin color. And so we dig, we dig into it a little bit, and we find out what the kids in kindergarten were doing is they were calling the peach color crayons skin color, all the light colors. And so... Um, what we did, we did two different things that really um, kind of helped mitigate this. The first thing we did, obviously, was um, my wife got on Amazon, ordered the Crayola skin color um, boxes of crayons, and donated you know a ton of boxes to the school so that that all the kids had a a wide variety of skin color that they could use with the crayons when they're coloring pictures. The other thing that the teacher did that was really helpful, and I, we feel that was very age appropriate, was. Um, in line with what happened with this, they had, they had all the kids get together in class and everybody put their hands together. And the teacher asked them, okay, does anybody here actually have the same skin color? And so they just pointed out that there's a lot of variety and everybody is a little bit different and a little bit unique. Obviously, as they get older, you know, that's not the exact conversation you want to have. But as far as kindergartners go, I, we feel like it was a very effective way. And it definitely, definitely helped our son kind of overcome that challenge. Great. So that helped your son, and I appreciate the donations to the school, and I appreciate the broadening the curriculums and ensuring that there's more representation at the school. Any additional things that will help other children of color broadly? How to use your privileges? We haven't done this. Um, Buy homes in places where the schools are underserved because school services are based upon property taxes, Property taxes fund our schools, underfunded schools in high poverty areas. If you pay more for a house there, if you pay property taxes there, that money goes to the schools. And we haven't done that. And I, I'm trying to think of ways to expand to not just my kid or my kid's friends or my neighborhood, but in the greater scheme of how do I help other people and leverage my privilege not standing in front of a movement, allowing other people of color to be in the front of that movement and supporting them. We've told our kids, we're your cheerleaders, we're your support staff, we're your drivers, we're your snack providers, and I need to move that to the next level. How many of you, um, your kids go to predominantly white schools? Okay, how many of you live in predominantly white neighborhoods? Own homes in predominantly white neighborhoods? Yeah. The cost of your home means that the schools in your community have more resources, Right, So you can move into a community that is under-resourced, but please be mindful of gentrification. Do we know what gentrification is? 
do not displace communities of colors because you want to be in a community of color to support your child. It's a, it's a complicated thing for you um, as a multiracial family. And please do not displace folks of color. This is happening in Oakland, San Francisco, South Los Angeles, where I'm from. Um, Seattle, it's happening everywhere. So well-intentioned and also having impacts. Um, I see your hand. Is it something systematic structurally? Okay. I just also want to add, this is the last one from this section, also just want to add that maybe you don't have to move there, but maybe you can vote to raise taxes, property taxes. Maybe you can figure out how to create a policy or some kind of structural shift that says, like, our property tax values, we want, to don't, we want our percentage of our property tax to help the communities near us that don't have resources, right? Like, you have resources. You can leverage your economic resources for other communities, right? That's one way. We've also heard about reparations. This is the last comment from this section. We're going to move to the next one. Something like 86% of teachers are white women, and one thing that teachers... that white parents can do is really push the administration and the school board on how they are working on recruiting and retra- retaining teachers of color. What does a school board look like? What does the Department of Education look like? So who is making these choices about how schools are funded and who's teaching our kids? Who are their peers? Who's in the classroom? What does the curriculum look like? Right? There's ways that you can have shifts locally and then also thinking about things larger. All right, next scenario. So you're shopping with your child. You see ethnic hair care products. Um, Y'all know it's a separate section for ethnic hair care products? White privilege. So the fact that it's separated, right, that hair care is just general, and then ethnic hair care is different. So they're already one. The products are separated. And then when you go, the ethnic hair care products are locked away. You have to go to the front and ask for a manager to come down to open the case so you can get your your Shea Moisture or your Curly Girl. And then you notice that they wouldn't open it. They didn't come when two, two teen girls of color asked for you to open it. But for you, walk over there real fast to open it for you. Okay, so how do you leverage your privilege? There's a lot of stuff happening here. Are we good? Why are y'all looking at me? Talk to your neighbors. <laughs> what you got? Oh, yeah, thank you. Ideas? What do you do? Where do I start? <laughs> well, we ain't got that much time. Okay, first thing I do is I, um, the manager brings me over there. I said, these girls were ahead of, us, ahead of me. Can we get them and let them get what they need? And then if they are feeling uncomfortable, I'll bring them up to the front to make sure they get checked out and are treated nicely. Then I go talk to the manager and say, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> these girls need this product. It's ridiculous that it's behind a locked glass door. What are you going to do about it? Then I talk about organizing a boycott of the store if they don't change. And then if it's a chain store, I write to the chain store and have them get some kind of, or work with them to get some kind of sensitivity training around, this is complete bullshit and you need to make hair care accessible for everyone no matter what their hair is like. Yeah. Good. Anyone else? Literally a group of folks went into the store, saw this happen, boycotted it, posted on social media, um, received a lot of hate threats and just received a lot of backlash for posting about this. Um, the store ended up unlocking it and they had all these excuses. Oh, we were going to lock up all of it, but you know, we didn't get around to the other section. <laughs> um, they also said, oh, well, you know, each store individually, because this is a large chain, each store individually has their own choices about how they you know, put their products up and they do this based on their um, experience with loss and recovery. Have you been in a store and saw this? Yes. 
Okay. So you've seen this happen. So you can do something about it. So um, I'm not a white voice, but, um, you know, they do the it's, it's the same as in a lot of the Asian hair stores that are meant for black people to get mm-hmm. the hair. So a lot of the, the chemicals in this stuff, even though they're locking it up, they got this stuff up to some of it up to thirty dollars that you're buying. But the chemicals on the back. If you, I never touch a lot of that stuff. I, I actually make my own stuff because mm. the stuff is so damaging to kids' reproductive organs, to the thyroid. Mm-hmm. It's just, a lot of the stuff is really damaging, and they're making it like, uh, you know, you gotta almost worship it to get to it. You know, right? You know. Exactly. Also, my sister over here names a pretty unique dynamic around black hair care um, in communities of color that predominantly the the local beauty supply stores are run by our Asian brothers and sisters. And even in those contexts, black folks are treated badly. So also, anti-blackness does not only exist in the white-black dynamic, anti-blackness also exists in communities of color, across communities of color. So we all, we need all folks to check their anti-blackness and to not have these impacts on our community. But there's a lot of discriminatory practices um, in California, when this happened, there's a California law about like stores, um, stores cannot have discriminatory practices, so there's actually still a lawsuit pending on this particular store. Okay, I want to show this video really quick for you to see how someone has practiced leveraging their privilege in the moment. My sister-in-law, uh, who's half black, half white, but looks white, blue eyes, whiter than most white folks, very white. Uh, she and I, you know, we kind of grew up together. We raised our children together. Uh, so they're first cousins. And we, you know, it's a wonderful, very, very multicultural family. So we're going in a safe way one day. And uh, Kathleen, my, my sister-in-law, is in front of me. And she's, uh, you know, writing a check for her girlfriend. Now, my daughter, who at the time was 10 years old, was standing with me. And I was directly behind her, you know, getting ready to get my girlfriend. So Kathleen comes up, and the checker, who's a strawberry blonde, um, freckled, very delightful, warm, um, you know, the checker, this young woman, is talking to Kathleen, hey, how you doing? It's been a nice day today. They're just chatting up. And she says, yeah, so Kathy writes her, her check, and she steps off to the side with the girls because she's writing for me. Of course, again, Kathleen looks white, right? So I come up. No conversation. She looks up at me. Absolutely no, just a little chatter. And uh, I write my check. My daughter, however, is 10. Notices immediately the difference in how she responds to me. So I write my check. And she goes, I'm going to need two pieces of ID. At which point, my daughter looks at me. And she gets very, very embarrassed. And tears are, are, are kind of coming from her eye. Like, Mommy, you're not going to let her do this. Why is she doing this to us, right? So I'm trying to figure out what I should do. Because behind me are two elderly white women. All right? Now I'm thinking, okay. So then I become the angry black woman. All right? And they're going to be. And I just, I'm, I'm just trying to second guess all the drama. So then I, I just give her the two pieces of ID. I said, you know, some things you've got to choose your battles, right? And then it gets worse. She pulls out the bad check book. Right? So the, this is the book that shows the people who have written bad checks. So she starts searching for my license in the bad checks. At which point, it's just out of control now. Just as I'm standing there um, trying to decide what to do, and it's really deeply humiliating, now my, my daughter's in full-blown emotionally upset, who's 10, my sister-in-law walks back over. 
And she steps in and she says, excuse me, why are you doing this? And the checker goes, well, what, what, do you, what do you mean? She goes, why are you taking her through all of these changes? Why are you doing that? She goes, well, um, this is our policy. She goes, no, it's not your policy because you didn't do that with me. Oh, well, I know you. You've been. She goes, no, no, she's been here for years. I only lived here for three months. And so at this point, the two white elderly ladies go, ah. Oh, I can't believe what this checker has done with this woman. <laughs> At which point, the manager walks over. So the manager walks over and says, is there a problem here? And then my sister-in-law again responds, she goes, yes, there is a problem here. Here's what happened. So you see, she used her white privilege. And even though Kathleen is half black and half white, she recognizes what that means. And she made the statement. She pointed out the injustice. And she, as a result of that one act, influenced everyone in that space. But what would have happened? I can't know for certain had the black woman said, this is unfair, why are you doing this to me? Would it have had the same impact? But Kathleen knew that she walked through the world differently than I did. And she used her white privilege to educate and make right a situation that was wrong. That's what you can do every single day. All right, so if you haven't seen this film, Write it down. If you don't know Dr. Joy DeGruy, she has a book called Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome. Um, it's, it, it helps ground a lot of my work in understanding the impacts of chattel slavery on black folks. Um, um, so that's an example of how you can use your white privilege in that moment. Again, her example, she, um, she used that in her own personal life, right? She had impact on those people who were around her. And we can probably think a little deeper about like, well, what are the policies about identification? and discriminatory practices and, you know, could have been more, right? We can always do the interpersonal, but what's great is the systemic, having like long-term change that will have impacts beyond just your community. Um, third scenario, after watching the news with your tween, your tween is worried, will I be the next or will blank happen to me? Will I be the next Trayvon Martin? Can that happen to me? Why is that happening to black boys? What's going on? Asking about the separation of families that's happening. I'm a person that's from a different country or my family background is from this country. Will that happen to me? How are you going to leverage your privilege when your kid asks you, can that happen to me? Are you just going to promise them, no, it won't happen to them? Are you going to promise them you're going to do everything in your power that it won't happen to them? Are you only going to worry about them? We can all get involved with... Um police reform movements locally, um, civilian oversight boards, um, giving more authority to um, police auditors and things like that. Yes, there's police oversight boards that should be represented by people of color. What else can you do? Y'all been talking about activism. I mean, y'all met Patrice Cullors, right? So now I'm asking, how do you leverage your privilege? Uh, another um, systemic cause that you can donate time and money to is bail reform because there are people incarcerated for no reason other than that they don't have the two $300 to get out. So organizations I'll name that's doing bail reform, Black Mamas Bailout, have you heard of them? Yes. Okay, so Black Mamas Bailout is bailing out black moms who are incarcerated. Um, the National Bailout is also an organization that is a part of Black Mamas Bailout. Um, and right now, we're finding out that some of the main reasons why folks are being separated or being held is because of bail in the current family separation crisis. One thing when Trayvon Martin happened, when Trayvon Martin yeah, was, was killed. Like, that doesn't sound sorry, that right was a really weird phrasing. Sorry about that. Um, when Trayvon Martin was murdered. Yes, mm -hmm. my daughter was a tween at that time, and one thing that we did was let her know that we were going to go and put our white bodies in front of hers, 
and we stood on street corners with signs and hoodies saying, am, are, are we suspicious? Am I suspicious? Just to try and get people to see that it was a racial profiling and that if they don't see this middle-aged white mom as suspicious, why are they seeing these young black kids as suspicious? And I think that putting our bodies in the way is one of the important things that we can do because I see the way people look at activists in any situation and it's a mob, it's a riot when it's a bunch of people of color and it's a protest when it's people who look like me. Yeah. And I want to see if I can use my privilege and my body and place it in a way of support, in a way of uh, helping create a barrier of safety. Yeah, a physical safety net. Um, when I have gone to rallies and protests, I have seen um, the white folks who will take more risk. Because, remember, you got to risk your privilege, Right. Um, I've seen when we, when I've seen um, organi- organizing, and you have to be one, don't just show up to protest and, and put your body out there. Be connected to an organization. Make sure you're following the leadership of the organizers of color. Um, these folks are trained um, on how to show up, they're trained on how to hold space. Um, if you don't know, an organization that you can check out is called Showing Up for Racial Justice, Surge. Yes. Um, they have great resources about how to show up for racial justice as, as, non, as white folks. Um, yeah, I've been to rallies where my, my white peer will be with me and will say, like, if the law enforcement come, I will be arrested. And here is the number for my lawyer, because they will bail me out. Because that's what it means to, to leverage your privileges and your resources on behalf of and in solidarity with. And when like things like, you know, when folks get on the freeway and decide to shut the freeways down, it's very intentional about which bodies should be on that freeway because they're going to get arrested, you know, and which bodies shouldn't be on that freeway. Shouldn't be black trans folks, shouldn't be folks who are undocumented, right, because there's multiple layers to safety. But we can't sit back in fear. We still have to show up. Um, I see a microphone right here. I was just going to say financially and, and with our votes, we need to support um, and elect uh, judges of color and uh, representatives in state, local, state, federal government, um, people of color, women of color um, in legislative bodies so that we can start making policy changes as yes. well. Yes, 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 yes. Um, yeah, I can be quick. Um, I've done this a few times and found it, it felt scary. And then, but the more that I've done it, the more emboldened I've felt about it. And the more clear, I'm actually clear that it's making a difference is when you see, um, a black man pulled over on the side of the road with, with cops, you pull over behind them and you stand out and you record it and you say, and they say, what are you doing? And you say, I'm, you know, like I have a right to do this. You know, you shouldn't be doing anything that you'd be embarrassed about and proceed. And then, and both times that I've done it in the last couple months, the person who they're, you know, who they've had like handcuffed next to the wall, they've let go, uh, they've like let him sit down, let him stand up. And the person has said, thank you, like, you know, mouth, thank you. And I mean, that is something like I'm, I'm Latina, but I have white skin and I'm very clear that I have that privilege and that, that is a very clear and easy and honestly safe for me way to use my privilege in a way that's quick and you see it all the time. We drive, I mean, I live in LA and you, you, I see it all the time. time. And so I just feel like 
it's something that every single person could do. It's very easy. It's very quick. And it makes a huge freaking difference. Yeah. So, The only amendment I would say is not only black men. Don't only pull over to record when they're wrestling, when they're harassing black men, black women, brown folks. If you see it happening, know that your stopping and recording could be the safety between life and death. Because a traffic stop is life and death. So I'm an aspiring person to do these things. And what I wanted to ask is if anybody knows of any training resources for the best ways to do that, whether it's on the highway or whether it's in person, you're on the street, like... California Justice and ACLU app for automatic recording of police harassment videos. It automatically sends it to the ACLU. Other resources. The only other thing I was going to add to that activity, I've also pulled over a few times, and what's been helpful is a hat in my car that has Black Lives Matter on it in my glove box because I've had the person in the process of getting arrested be really upset with me and then need the clarification afterwards, but there isn't always the time. So I found the third time I did it, having the hat on immediately gave that acknowledgement of what I was doing and didn't need any verbal. The district attorney is the person who's supposed to prosecute, and they often don't. So check on the statistics of how many times your local district attorney has prosecuted um, bias law enforcement. All right, I think we're almost out of closing. Um, I think that here collectively... As you raise your black children, our brown children, our children of color, like how do you leverage your privilege not only for your own child? Because again, remember that just reinforces white supremacy because that's what white folks have been doing all along. You've been helping your people get on, right? It doesn't change if you're the person that you're doing it for. It's great. I think that black and brown children deserve that. But if it's only for your individual child, you're just reinforcing white supremacy. So let's do it for the collective. I want to thank you for spending the time with your ancestors and having the courage to come into this space. Yeah. Amen to that. And, um, yeah, and I think the all in caps and red is not lost on us, and, and I imagine we'll get it wrong all the time. But thank you for helping us check our privilege and work on it. Thank you. And with that, I think I'm going to just close out. Good? I hope something shared on this episode will inspire you to parent for liberation. Thank you for listening to this episode of Parenting for Liberation. Please like us on all social media at Parenting for Liberation. We'd love to hear from you how you are Parenting for Liberation. Feel free to comment, like, tag using the hashtag Liberated Parenting. Feel free to DM or email us at parentingforliberation at gmail.com with any questions, topics, or if you'd like to be interviewed for the podcast. All right. Until next time, let's get free, y'all.